watching him with his people. He is a pastor's pastor. He loves that group so well. It's a different group than uh, who we are. And just to watch him walk amongst his people. He's led them uh, through incredible highs and some very low lows. You've been at that church for 40 years? 40 years serving one church uh, in Florida. And he's going to talk for a little bit about leadership or whatever you're going to talk about. I'm not sure we didn't really talk about it. And then uh, we will have a chance for probably just like three or four questions um, at the end. And I would encourage you to be thoughtful, ask him a question about the domination, about how church leadership works, about uh, how ruling elders should love and care for their pastors. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, whatever you want to ask him, right? All right. I, I'm, I second that uh, mad skills by Trevor. My goodness. Um, and thanks, uh, whoever put this meal together. Awesome. Thanks for the, the workers. Um, really, really good. Um, my wife and I have had a ball being with you. It's been too short, but the, um, uh, the vibrancy of the church is evident. Um, you know, yesterday we saw um, babies all the way to um, um, old folks and Matter of fact, I was concerned there's Kevin Twitt up there playing and bopping around, and some of the elderly folks were doing it too, and I, I just got 911 on speed dial. Um, but uh, honestly, the spirit of the place, the vibrancy of the place, that, that there, there aren't that many churches that have that whole span of, and almost it seemed like an equal numbers. Um, and uh, it's a family. Uh, it's a beautiful picture. Um, just the joy of you guys, the warmth of you guys. The I, I could go on and on. Um, gosh, who wouldn't love uh, to have the chance to be a part of a church like Mitchell Road uh, Presbyterian Church? So praise God for um, uh, for that for um, you guys. Something happened last night that was really um, remarkable to me, and I couldn't begin to tell you the whole uh, meaningfulness of the um, story. But, you know, if you were here last night, I talked about um, how Paul's, um, when Paul shows up in chains, making his way as a prisoner to Rome, all these people came out 60, 80 miles to walk with him into the city. Um, and, uh, and I said, you know, that's the church. We need somebody in our life that, that, uh, that's going to come walk with us, um, come hell or high water. And and I told about my son when, when we were walking the Inca Trail and, and how he did that. He came and took his dad's backpack, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and more than anything else, he just came all the way down there to get me. And, uh, and get me, uh, and my, you know, my youngest son, to see my son. Anyway, um, so I told that story. And, uh, and as I was telling it, sitting in that crowd was a couple from our church. And um, they... Um, they retired to somewhere in Georgia, North Georgia, three hours from here, and found out I was preaching. So they haven't been in our church in a number of years, but they found out I was preaching, so they came over here just for that service. Um, and you have to know that we have a daughter that grew up with something called cyclic vomiting syndrome, and that um, uh, meant that, that at various times in her life, very sadly, at usually the most happy occasions, birthday parties, you know, big events, you know, exciting things, she begins vomiting, and it could never be stopped. 
and only could be stopped by bringing her to the emergency room and admitting her to the hospital and having her completely sedated. The worst of the years was 11 times in one year. And um, so every time that was a very dramatic for our family, it was horrific to see her suffer. She would go into a catatonic state, a non-communicative, just drooling out the side of her mouth. This is before the sedation. It was just horror for us as parents, disrupted our family, sapped us, you know. But that woman that came last night, her husband's a pharmacist, she's a nurse. Um, they had access to very powerful drugs. And, um, and so she said to us, next time this happens with your daughter, you call me, I'll come to your house. No more going to the emergency room, no more going to the hospital. And uh, so every time it happened after that, it always happened at night, it was always uh, one, two, three in the morning. She would come with her box of, uh, of drugs uh, and um, sedate our daughter and sit with her, make sure she didn't kill her, um, and, uh, and get her through the night. I mean, so that woman, as much as anybody in, in my ministry, fought for our family at great personal cost. And there she was sitting there last night when... Uh, when uh, um, when, when God had me appointed to talk about that very thing, there is nothing as beautiful as the church of Jesus Christ, what Jesus does to bind people together. And we've seen it in you guys. It's beautiful. So keep going. Whether you're a leader or whether you're one of those pseudo-artificial leaders that Andy... Um, <laughs> yeah. And I can tell. Ministers can just look, and I can tell which are which. So, All right, going to read... Um, just two verses, um, and, uh, and, and here it is. For I am not ashamed, Romans um, chapter 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There is a righteousness which comes from God. All right? Now, it is a terrible thing to be without power, right? Um, I think of the um, Fukushima power plant. Many of you uh, know that name. I mean, a power plant produces power, but what happens when a power plant doesn't have power, right? Then they can't... um, so the tsunami in Japan, then the power plant can't produce, uh, can't, can't run the pump, circulate the water, cool the plant, the plant melts down. You have a massive disaster. So when a power plant doesn't have power, that's, that's not good. Um, if you're a dad uh, and your daughter has bulimia, there's your baby, your child, and uh, they're wasting away. And doctors do this and counseling and everything else. But you've got, there's, and you do everything. And nothing works, right? What about if you're um, a husband and your wife doesn't like the church? Or far more likely, she doesn't like you, right? Um, and, and yet you really do try hard. You try whatever you could think of. And yet all you're trying doesn't yield um, any fruit. What if you're a preacher and your preaching has no impact? What if you study and you pray and you ask other people to pray and you work hard at it? And I mean, it's a terrible thing not to have power. It's a terrible thing. Imagine if, if, if you're in the, in the military 
and, and you sight on, onto an enemy tank and you aim your artillery and you fire the shell and it hits the target and it doesn't explode. Again and again and again, you put yourself in harm's way and, and, and yet it makes no impact, right? Um, well, after pastoring for 10 years, um, church members began to come to me struggling and saying, you know, I'm trying harder, but I'm not getting anywhere. I still hate myself. I'm angry, distant from my spouse, and um, depressed, I'm discouraged. I am trying hard, uh, and I'm not getting anywhere. Um, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, but I'm not new. There's nothing new. It's not working. Well, that provoked a crisis in me because as they would sit there, I, I would think, you know, all I have to tell them is you probably need to try harder. Um, um, you know, um, I've got a book. Uh, maybe that will be helpful. Um, you know, my advice to be more devoted was not very effective. It seemed to be actually um, uh, discouraging them uh, all the more. But even worse was my inability, you know, I'm firing shells, but they're not uh, impacting, was I the realization that I had to face that I wasn't being transformed either. They were just giving voice to what was happening in me. Um, I was stale with God. I didn't love my neighbors. In fact, I didn't even know who they were. Um, our marriage was not clicking. And uh, the one thing I wanted to do more than anything in my life was be a dad. And my older son was so angry a good deal of the time. In fact, he ran away at one point. Um, I came to our community to bring gospel change to a broken community. And it was, it was startling to discover that what most needed transforming in the community was me. I was more broken. Um, so what changed me? Now, I take good comfort in this. It's the same thing that changed Martin Luther. There is a righteousness that comes from God. That's what changed my whole life. There is a righteousness that comes from God. So here's the premise of what I want to say tonight, is that the gospel has the power to transform the most resistant person. Who's the most resistant person to the gospel? It's the pastor. Or the elder. Or the church staffer. Deacons, not so much. <laughs> um, now why is that? Because our position and our knowledge interferes with our getting the gospel. All we've learned and experienced, and even perhaps a lifetime of going to church, has inoculated us from getting the gospel. We've been vaccinated, and, and, um, and we've developed antibodies to the gospel. So we are the most resistant to it. Um, yet if a pastor and elder is to be an agent of gospel impact, it only stands to reason that they need to experience it themselves, you know? I thought I had the gospel. Listen, I'm a church kid. I grew up in the church. My parents are Christians. I, it was a Christian home. They sent me to Christian school. I went to a Christian college. I went to a Christian graduate school. 
I went through communicants class as a kid. Um, I mean, the whole package, right? The gospel um, was for unbelievers. Um, I was a believer. Um, um, I had no clue, however, I was an older brother, the quintessential older brother. I didn't know there were two ways to run from God. You know, the younger brother paradigm to be defiantly unrighteous, right? To basically give God the middle finger and say, no, you're not Lord of me. I'm going to do as I please, right? Um, I got that. That's what I thought there was in the world. There were people like that, and then there were people like me, you know, who were righteous. Um, I didn't know there were two ways um, to run from God. Um, I didn't understand that you could also, besides being defiantly unrighteous, you could be defiantly self-righteous. You can defiantly believe you can produce your own righteousness. Okay? But listen, I fully understood that I needed Jesus and his death on the cross to get me to heaven. But at that point, if I wanted to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, that was on me. I was going to heaven. I belonged to him. But if I wanted to hear, well done, well, that I had to produce. I had to produce my own righteousness. I did not know what it meant to repent of my righteousness. That was this. I heard Tim Keller say that. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's the whole point. The whole point of being a Christian is to be righteous. It's to do righteous things. How do you repent for doing the right thing? I get it. Murder, maim, rape, kill, repent for all of that, even lie. Um, But righteousness, how do you repent for your own righteousness? That's just silly. I didn't get it. So I've come to learn that few Christians get the gospel. We don't believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We do not believe that Christ is our righteousness. And I'm going to try to support um, that assertion. My experience is that most preaching I hear is not about what Christ has done, but about what we are supposed to do. Um, So one of the places I I realized it was when we went on vacation and we would visit other churches, very often PCA churches, but always evangelical, usually growing, solid churches. We would hear the sermon, and then I would turn to my children and I would say, what was missing in that sermon? And after a while, they got the routine. Uh, And I didn't even have to ask the question. They would bring it up after the sermon. But when I would say, what was missing for that sermon, what do you think they would say? It was one word. Jesus. Jesus was missing. For instance, we went to this church with um, a, a great pastor, writes great books. I love the books. They're helpful. And the sermon when we went there, big city, big church, dynamic the sermon was on being a godly husband. Like, oh, great. What a, what a great week to pick. Um, and, um, and when it was all over, every point came from the Bible. Every point was true and based on something the Bible says. I think it was the five or the seven reasons, you know, things that a godly husband does. When it was all over, I turned to my wife and I said, I don't do any of those things. Um, see, what, what did they fail to say? Jesus is the godly husband. Jesus is the husband to the bride, the church, who does all those things perfectly, right? 
And I am the recipient of his being a husband to me um, and loving me a failure. None of that. There was no Jesus. You see, I mean, it was a biblical sermon, but it wasn't. Um, listen, um, um, I heard one time, I don't even understand grammar, and I, don't, I didn't study grammar, I didn't want to know grammar, and I succeeded. Um, but somebody told me one time the indicative precedes the imperative and the order can never be reversed so I had to look those words up um, indicative Um, but who you are precedes what you are to do that's the gospel um, instruction who you are precedes what you are to do now some of you are sitting there saying wait a second yesterday he just laid imperatives on us He said, go on mission, go on mission, be about mission, be mission driven, right? Go, go, do, you do. Where was the Jesus part? The whole point is, um, um, when did that instruction come to the disciples? What had Jesus just done? What What had he just accomplished? He had just washed their feet and walked into, um, the garden of Gethsemane begged for them to um, sit with him. None of them were his friends. None of them walked like uh, uh, Paul's friends came out to him. They, they went to sleep again and again and again. And uh, on his own, he went to Calvary. He went to Golgotha. He paid the price, right? He suffered crucifixion. He was on mission, right? And his love for us is the indicative. Who are we? We are the recipients of that kind of eternal, gracious, loving, unmerited favor of Jesus. Therefore, what? Go on mission. Therefore, go. Go. Tell the world the king, right? See that? Um, The indicative precedes the imperative. Of course, the great place in the Bible that we see that is the Ten Commandments, right? All imperatives, right? It's in the Bible. You ought to preach the imperatives. You're a pastor. You, everywhere you open the Bible, it tells it's telling you to do something, right? Um, so, um, don't worship any other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't uh, commit adultery and, and don't bear false witness. And all they're all imperatives, right? Do this, do that, don't do this. But that's not how the passage starts, right? How does it start? I am the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And I am the God that came to you when you were slaves in Egypt, and I liberated you. And I brought you through um, the river, right? And I've given you that, you know, so it all starts with, I'm the God who knew you. I'm the God who loved you. I'm the God who saves you. I'm the God who's for you. Therefore, what? Now, go and do this. You got it? All right. So let me say this, and that's all, <laughs> that's all an introduction. Um <laughs> The scariest words ever for a group. Uh, just as you think, he's about to say, so in wrapping up. I did. I just wrapped up the introduction. Three things I'm going to say. Number one, most Christians give assent to salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we are made right with God by Jesus' righteousness alone. Most Christians give assent to salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we are made right with God by Jesus' righteousness alone. We think we have merit. What is, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. We think we have merit. 
How else do you explain our pride, our arrogance, our self-righteousness, our inability to repent or to see our sin? How else do you explain a critical spirit, the critical spirit that we have toward others? Um, How we sit in a restaurant and we see some parent and their kids are, are hellions and we're paying good money for this meal. And, and back in our day, we did not let our kids um, behave that way in public places. What is a matter with uh, parents today, right? What is that? Is that what people who have no merit would do? I mean, you don't have any merit. You don't have any merit as parents to look down on any other parent, right? Do you really believe you have no merit? Look at that woman and the way she dresses coming to church. Look at how short that skirt is. Look at how high her heels are. What is this, a cocktail party? Right? I don't know. Shield your eyes, Johnny. Um, And I've noticed, if you don't notice in the news cycle, there's a villain of the week. And that's about the news cycle, right? Somebody can do the most heinous things, and and it only lasts a couple days in the news. They've got to move on to the new villain of the week. There's always somebody presented every week. I think maybe it was Herschel Walker last week. I'm not sure yet what this week's villain of the week uh, will be, that everybody can read about that person and say, man, I like, I, I'm, I'll never do that. I'm, uh, I'm superior. That person is wicked. They're bad, right? How is it that people who have no merit are so capable of having a critical spirit? Nancy Pelosi, that one was a witch, right? MAGA, what kind of idiots are in that movement, right? You can sit there all the time. For people who don't have merit, we act very meritorious. Um, so a woman in our church, um, her righteousness was she had two sons who were pastors. And not only that, she had three sons. So she's two out of three. Um, two, were pres- two were pastors. They were Presbyterian pastors. There's here, here, here here and uh and um she was always telling me about them and all the stuff they're doing ah it was her righteousness she produced pastors presbyterian pastors then the day came when um her oldest son who was a a pastor in in another presbyterian denomination um left his wife uh divorced her uh therefore left uh damage their grandkids, this woman's grandchildren. Not only did he take up with someone else, the someone else he took up with was a man. Um, And he married a man. And uh, this woman was furious. She was furious at her son. She cut him off. He was not welcome in her house. She wouldn't take phone calls from him. She wrote him out of her life. As mad as she was at her son, she was far more angry at Um, She came to me and she said, Pastor, I did everything right. I raised him in the church. I took him to vacation Bible school. We sent him to Christian school. We did it all. We did our part. God has not done his part. It's a quid pro quo, you know. And um, she never took communion. Her husband was an elder. She never took communion in our church again. As far as I know, she died as bitter as she was that um, day. Um, We think we have merit. 
We get our righteousness uh, from our performance. So learning what it means to repent of my righteousness was very hard for me. You know, all my righteousness is as filthy. What? Um, I remember I was teaching that in a, in a, uh, a class one time, and, and a man there said to me, I, I said, all your righteousness doesn't, doesn't do a thing for you with God. Um, and it's filthy rags. In a sense, it's nasty in God's sight. And the guy said, that is not true. That is not true. He said, can you tell me, because for years I've been volunteering with the Special Olympics, and, uh, and you're going to tell me that's, that's filthy rags? I said, I, ca- I can't really tell you that. I just have to know why you do it. And he said, because it makes me feel so good. There you have it. You did it for who? You did it for God or you just told me. You did it for yourself. Um, To realize that our righteousness is aimed at validating our worth. Our behavior is often aimed at validating our worth. When we are doing good things, we are doing them to feel better about ourselves. Not believing in the gospel, not believing that the love of God is enough, not believing that adoption into God's family and having his favor is enough, that it's up to us to cover our sin and our shame. We're still Adam and Eve hiding behind fig leaves. That's what our deeds are. They're fig leaves. We used to have a fig tree. If you hide behind fig leaves, you're going to get arrested if you're naked. (laughs) Fig leaves are not effective and neither are our deeds, right? So a Christian repents of his good deeds not see see, it's not distinctly christian to repent almost everybody repents pagans repent if if you're unkind to somebody if you steal from somebody if you're whatever most people there are people don't but most people are sorry most people to some level will say i'm sorry they're sorry it's not distinctly christian to be sorry right To be sorry for the wrong things you've done, what is distinctly Christian is to repent of the good things you've done. Because we never do any good thing uh, that's completely pure because we're in love with God and we're responding to his favor for us. We're covering our shame. It's the human um, condition. We have to repent for our uh, good deeds because they are attempts at validation and because of that they are offensive to God. That's why they stink. Give you an example. I heard this from a pastor friend. He had a critic in the church. Guy was very righteous, and um, and on top of that, he was an attorney. Really good at righteous, and um, so and if there's attorney here, well, your wife knows what I mean. So, um, so the um. um you know, every sermon, this guy would never really make eye contact, writing down, always had kind of critical comments, little side, you know. And um, one week he's preaching, and he looks down, and, uh, and, and he can't believe it. This guy's, like, choking back tears, sobbing, broken. And, uh, I mean, he just cannot believe what's going on. What is this? What, what's happening in this guy's life? 
And it, it just so happened that this guy had uh, adopted a number of uh, African-American children, um, more than one, at least. In, and in the South, this was a Southern setting, um, that was pretty remarkable. They were probably the only African-Americans in the church. Um, and um, so when the pastor encountered him after church and said, hey, obviously something going on, what's up? He said, I think I get it. He said, I have always taken inordinate pleasure over the way people look at me wherever I go in our city with these African-American children. Especially in the church that people think, wow, he's the real deal. And he said, this morning I realized that I adopted those children for me, not for them that I like the way it makes me feel that I'm the sacrificial Christian leading the way for justice and righteousness in our culture. I don't love those kids. I love myself. See, see what I'm talking about? That's gospel progress. That's repenting of your righteousness. That's really hard, right? Really hard. Why is it so hard for the rich to be saved? Isn't it interesting that Jesus said that? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. That's the verse in the Bible that ought to make every North American. I don't mean just wealthy North Americans, because all North Americans are wealthy. We're the wealthiest people on the earth. The poorest among us are the wealthiest people on the earth, right? The wealthiest people who've ever lived on the earth ever. So why do we should tremble? What is it about... The rich are singled out. Because what do you need to go to heaven? You need one thing. What's that? Need. The only thing you need is need. And that's the very thing the rich lack, right? Um, give you an example. We, we um, every now and then in our church, we do prayers for healing and generally, it's right in the middle of the service. People are coming forward for the Lord's Supper. We allow them to come, and, and the elders will anoint them and, and pray over them for healing right in that public service. And uh, one of the first times we did it, um, I do a lot of explaining of, of it, and, uh, and, and I really wondered, would anybody in our church do it, come forward? It's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of, you're up front. Everybody sees. It's kind of exposed. It's kind of personal. And... and um, uh, and, and in that weekend, I would say 15, 12 to 15 people in our church in the, in the two services um, came forward for prayer for healing while we did that. I thought, I'm proud of these guys, you know. They, they stepped out. They needed Jesus to intervene somehow, and beautiful. But that same weekend, we had the PATH homeless shelter um, in church. And for a number of years, probably a good... 20 years, uh, the homeless shelter would all come to church on Saturday night. There are about 25 of them. And it's uh, amazing to have this, this group of homeless men, almost entirely men, in church every Saturday night. I used to have to walk the campus from my office across the campus into the church, and they'd arrive before the service and all in a van. They'd be piling out of their vans. They'd be smoking outside before they came in um, church. And as I walked by, they'd say, Father! Give them hell, Father. Um, 
you know, there's always, be, there's always somebody inside the door. It's like, Pastor, I'm so glad you're here this week, and I am so looking forward to your exposition from the Synoptic Gospels. And uh, somehow, give them hell, Father. Encourage me far more than... Um, and, um, and when we did the healing prayer... 24 out of 25 of them came forward. And I just walked away and said, just, you know, my head cocked a little to the side and I realized they got nothing. They got nothing. They don't have a home. They don't have a bank account. They don't have any dignity. They don't have a job. They got nothing. They're desperate for Jesus. Most Christians, um, Most Christians give assent to salvation by faith alone, but we don't believe we are made right with God by Jesus' righteousness alone. Second, most Christians do not believe God's anger is propitiated. Um, They're trying to please God with their behavior, with their performance. We base our assurance of our justification on our sanctification. If we are good, we are acceptable. We understand Christ as our sin-bearer, Jesus died for my sins on the cross, but not uh, as our righteousness producer. And this produces a deep insecurity in Christians. Christians are more profound, church-going Christians are more profoundly insecure than non-Christians. Because if you get a steady dose of the character of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, even the wrath of God, all of which is true, all of which is in the Bible, but you don't understand the nature of the gospel, then how could you be anything but insecure? Right? You see, a judge may exonerate you, but he doesn't love you. Right? The judge can bang his gavel and say, your sins are gone. Your transgressions are gone. They will not be held against you. Um, And if that's what Jesus dying on the cross accomplished is that when we die, the, the, the judge will let us pass. You know, the judge doesn't take off his robe and embrace you and say, I love you, and you're coming home with me, and you're going to live in my house. You're going to be my child. That's a whole different deal. Um, and you say, how, how would I know that? I will just say this. For 40 years as a pastor, I've asked every potential member of our church this old evangelism explosion, EE question. If you were to die and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And consistently for 40 years, half of the people in a new member's class answer one thing and the other half answer the other. Half of them say, Jesus died for my sins. We'll call that the Christian answer. The other half say, I was a good Methodist. Um, I've always tried to do what the Bible says. I've never hurt anyone, right? They, they give what we call a non-Christian answer, right? They're depending on themselves. Half say, Jesus died for my sins. The other say, my merit will get me into heaven, okay? But what nobody says, I think I've had one person in my entire ministry says that Jesus kept all the law of God for me. And his righteousness is imputed to me so that I will stand before God righteous in his sight. Nobody has ever said that in 40 years but one. Thank you, Diane. (laughs) 
No, I don't know who that was, but uh, there, there was one. I can't say that uh, nobody ever said it. Um, that's what I'm talking about. So, I, you know, I, I've described it through the years to, to, to folks in our church with this illustration. I said, do you have Truist Banks here? Truist. Um, you go into Truist Bank and, and you um, bounce 10 checks, right? And, and there's a penalty for that, right? What's the penalty for bouncing a check at Truist? I just wanted to see who knew. <laughs> kind of outed yourself. But, um, yeah. So you go into the check and you, you bounce checks. You not only owe the penalty, but you actually owe what you um, uh, wrote the check for. You're in, you're in deep weeds, right? And so what if the bank manager comes over to you and says, oh, we're going to waive all that debt. Would that be grace? It's fascinating because every new member's class, they just sit there. Would that be grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Would that be grace? Finally, if you say, yeah, that would be grace. Exactly. That's a grace you're not going to get from Truist Bank, right? That's not going to happen. Um, but they're going to waive all of that. Um, and I also like to tell the class, you know what? There's no such thing as waiving debt. Somebody has to pay for it. The shareholders of that bank actually have to pay that debt. But let's just say it's all gone. You don't have to pay it. You walked in there. You owed it. It's taken away. That's the Christian experience of most people in America. Jesus took my debt away. Then when that guy walks out of the bank, what's his financial condition? It's exactly the same as when he walked in the bank. He has no money. And so what does he have to immediately do upon walking out of that bank? Get to work. Produce. That's a... That's Christianity in America, in a nutshell. Jesus died for my sins on the cross, but if I want the favor of God, if I want him to say, well done, if he's really going to smile on me in my life, it's because I'm producing. I'm producing merit. I am acting in meritorious ways, right? I spoke, uh, gave this message at a camp one time, and a little girl came up to me uh, afterwards, and she was so excited. And she said, did the parable of the prodigal son and everything, she said, I, my whole life, I've been living to please myself for myself. And I got what you said, Pastor. Thank you for coming. This is going to change everything. Now, every morning when I wake up, I'm going to wake up and say, I am not living for myself. I am going to live to try to please God with my life. I got it, right? I said, no, sweetheart. You didn't get it at all. Because if I'd have said to that girl, that's exactly it. All I'd have done is turned her from a younger brother into a what? older brother I said no I don't want you to get up every morning and, uh, and, and say I want to try to live in such a way that God will be pleased with me I want you to wake up every morning amazed that you have your father's full pleasure you could not have it anymore because of what Jesus did for you because you're covered with the righteousness that he's earned for you and then I want you to live out of that fullness right all right, I'm out of time. Um, but let me finish, because most Christians don't experience God as an affectionate father. We don't know his kiss. He may be a satisfied judge, as we say, but we don't know his embrace, his care, his affection, and his generosity. And this was my story. I thought I had the gospel, but I had no clue I was the proverbial older brother. 
and it led to pastoring. That means staff leadership. That means leadership of the church, which urged people to run hard because only the faithful will feel the smile of God. Um, In other words, the church has to produce for me to feel good about myself that God will one day say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. So I've got to drive the church towards the kind of production that I need to have to have the favor of God. It was kick-butt Christianity. Take the hill, hands on the plow, no turning back. The, I heard Jim Boyce. You ever, you, know, you ever heard of Jim Boyce? Famous pastor, 10th Presbyterian. I heard Jim Boyce say one time, somebody asked him, what's the bare minimum to be a Christian? And Jim Boyce said, everything. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Love that. Um, but what's the problem? I don't give any everything. Nobody gives everything. I had to face the fact that the fruit of the Spirit was absent in my life. I didn't love Jesus intimately. I was filled with anxiety. How can I not be, right? I got to earn the favor of God. And all of this while the church was growing like crazy. Well, God was kind enough to send me messengers to me. My wife was one of those messengers. There were others. But one encounter really had an impact. This very young girl came in, made an appointment to see me. She was brand new in our church. Uh, when she came in to see me, it was like five minutes before the office closed. She said, that's all I need, five minutes. Right at the end of the day, I'll get off work, I'll come right over there, just five minutes, just give me five minutes. And, uh, and, and then she like sat in her car, and then she came in and she was sitting there and she was just in the pastor's office trembling, which is the way it should be. And... Uh, <laughs> And she said to me, um, well, pastor, I don't even know if I should tell you this. I, this is really hard. And then she got up. I think twice she got up like she was going to leave. I said, no, 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 no. Tell me. And she said, well, I, I'm a teller at the bank. And we had this uh, meeting of all the branches of the bank and all the tellers together. And giving us some instruction and training. And, and afterwards, we we're putting all the chairs away. And I heard them talking about their worst customer and, uh, and how they felt tr- uh, d- demeaned by their worst customer and then she looked up she trembled and she said and pastor they were talking about you she's brand new at our church and she's confronting me pastor they were talking about you and my first thought was that is ridiculous the people at that bank are blithering idiots They screw up my account. I go in there. I have a detailed markdown about everything they've done wrong. Very patiently. Smile on my face because I'm a Christian. Uh, I explain. Uh, I remember thinking, I don't get it. I am the model customer. I prove every one of their mistakes wrong. You know, I had to come to realize I treated them the way I thought God treated me. Uh, so I went to counseling. And uh, I go, go to this counselor, and uh, he says, you know, we sit down. He says, why are you here? And so if you go to counseling, just be ready for that question. It's, you know, it's like a lead. And you want, if you want to look good like I did, you want to have an answer ready. Um, so why are you here? I said, well, I, I don't think that I love, um, 
I'm not sure that I love God well. And he, I'm not kidding, we're 30 seconds in, and he says, you don't, you hate him. I said, I don't hate God. People who hate God go to hell. I'm not going to hell. So that's off the table. Um, he said, no, you do. Well, let's keep going. And, um, uh, and I said, I don't think I love the people. Um, I don't love God well. I don't think... Uh, um, uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think I love the people in the church very well and they love me either. And he said, well, tell me more about that. Um, and uh, I said, this is like the most embarrassing thing I've ever said. I told him, I, I, I'm ashamed at even telling you this, that I thought this. But a friend of mine's been a pastor of his church for 15 years, uh, five, five years, and they just had this big party for him. It got like new golf clubs. And uh, he got like a freezer full of steaks. And he's just reeling through the whole list of all these gifts that he gave for five years. Five years. I, he's telling me, and I'm going, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. You know, I'm so glad for you. And all the time I'm thinking, 15 stinking years. They don't even do October Pastor Appreciation Month. <laughs> and, uh, and I told the counselor, I said, um, and I got to admit that when he told me that, and I'm so ashamed to admit this, it's so selfish, but I said, I thought, my congregation, they never threw a party for me. And when those words came out of my mouth, I thought, oh, crap. I channeled, I had just channeled the older brother. Those are the very words he said in the parable of the prodigal son. Dad, you never threw a party for me. I said, Crap, I'm that guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it really was a horrible realization that the congregation didn't love me because I didn't love them. That my pastoring effort was just using people in a massive project of self-validation. And even more sobering, far more sobering than that, the most painfully sobering, well, that was true of my parenting, too. In many respects, I didn't love my children. I was just trying to shape them up. My parenting efforts were ultimately about me looking good and feeling good about myself. So what changed me? The gospel realization that there is a righteousness that's produced from God. The, the purpose of the Christian life is not to pay God back. The purpose of the Christian life is not to earn well done, good and faithful servant. The purpose of the Christian life, you know, there's a righteousness that's produced by God and given to us. Righteousness is not produced by us and given to God as a gift of thanks for his sacrificial love for us. There is a righteousness. Jesus did not just take my sins away. He also gave me something. He gave me his perfect record so that when I stand before God, I don't give him my resume. That'd be stupid. I give him Jesus' resume, and God seeing that. And not only that, it's not just when I die. It's every morning when I wake up, right? Um, I have favor. I lay my head on my pillow at night. I have favor with God. I begin to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. I begin to believe I was a beloved son. I remember one, one th a theologian said this. I don't know who it was, but my relationship with God was like I was a child following a father, but my father was about 30 paces up ahead of me. That's the way I viewed God. I should follow God. It's the truth. The Bible's true. God's true. I'm following him, and I'll follow him my whole life. I'm devoted to this. He's up there. That's the way I should go. I'd be foolish to get off this road. 
That's what it means to be a Christian. I am a follower of God. And I realized that's not what it's really like. I'm a little boy and he's my dad and he's holding my hand and we're walking together and he's stopping as we walk and he's showing me a caterpillar there and I'm mesmerized by it and I pick it up in my hand and and, uh, and every now and then he just stops and he, and he looks at me and, and his eyes get clouded with tears and he throws me up in the air and we laugh together because I'm his kid. It reminded me of, of how parents, you know, when you take your little four-year-old, you got to get them in soccer and you bring them, they're four years old. Um, they're not going to be the next Neymar without getting started early. And um, so... Um, um, you know, you watch them out there when they play, and they're out there playing, and uh, and they're like, "That's why can't my kid scored a goal." Yeah, for the other team, you know. You know um, and they're pathetic; they're terrible. They don't know which way to kick it. Half the times, they don't even care. They're just digging in the dirt, you know. And, and yet, when they walk off the field, you're like, "That was my kid." I came to realize, you know, when I stand up to preach. I just envisioned God looking down at me and saying, <laughs> Cortez, he tries so hard, <laughs> but he's pathetic. Uh, look, at, look at him. Uh, you know what? I love that kid. That's my kid. I love that kid. Um, so getting the gospel, it impacted my marriage I didn't need to demand my wife's validation or work, work, work to get that and then be sullen or distant because I didn't get it from her. Um, no, I could love her. Um, I, could, I could preach with more freedom and less fear of criticism. I remember when a guy walked out after church and he said, I perceive that you are not a loving man. I was like, well, way to go, Bonzo. You know, I mean, how long did you have to come here to figure that out? Talk to two or three people around here. You could have got right all over that. I said, so that's established. I'm not a loving man. The question is, are you? I said, I just preached my heart out in front of a church, and you walked out, and the first thing you said to me was a critique of me. So granted, I am not a loving man. And I've got people in my life who are helping me grow in that area. But what about you? The evidence right in this moment shows that perhaps your problem is equal or worse than mine. That kind of response would have never... Um, um, to, be, to be free, to go for people's heart. Um, and parenting, my goodness, I didn't... I, I, I was killing our older son. I had the rope pulled so tight. He's a pastor's kid. He's got to look good, you know? If, I had, if, if, if God hadn't given me the grace to let the rope out on that boy, he would have run. Um, so to live in the gospel, is a, I, I told the staff today, it's a daily thing. Because ministry is overwhelming, and I know I can't do it, and I go to bed at night, and I say, Jesus, this church is your church. These people are your people. I'm not the good shepherd. You're the good shepherd. Uh, so, Lord, I'm going to bed now. It's your problem. I'm going to sleep. Thanks for loving me. I love you too. I sleep. And then when I wake up in the morning, put my feet in the floor, you know what my first thought is? Man, you better go produce or you're worthless. 
your whole schedule is filled. And uh, if you don't hustle, you're going to look like a fool because you're going to fail today. And I have to remember the gospel every single day. Now, I don't know what happens, but it leaks out when I sleep. <laughs> it all leaks out. Um, <laughs> thanks. Thanks. There it is. I, I, Rush Limbaugh used to sell those gospel mattresses, I think. Um, uh, he died and, gosh, missed the chance. Um, so, friends, I just say to you, um, 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 I'll just finish with this. I went to um, Promise Keepers one. I don't know if you guys remember that. Some of you are too young. They had these big stadium rallies. And uh, I took my men's group. We went to one in St. Petersburg, 40-some thousand people there or whatever in this stadium. And uh, it was interesting. At the end of this whole thing, they say, I want all the pastors in the crowd to come down on the stage. Uh, and I'm sitting up there with my guys. We're up in the nosebleeds. And I said, there's no way I'm going. This has got like Pentecostal flavor to it. And uh, I don't know whether it's going to be, I don't know whether they're putting demons in, taking demons out. I don't know what it is, but... <laughs> I'm staying out of the demon zone, and uh, I'm not going down there. Somebody's going to start putting hands, and I could get slain in the spirit, and I could, my whole life could go off in a different direction, and um, I'm not going down. Literally, the guys in my small group are like, you are going down there, you coward, and uh, they're like picking me up and shoving me to the aisle, and I thought, what the heck? I'm closer to the exit, you know? If I'm all the way down there, uh, I, you know, it was practical. I can get out. Um, so I go, I go down there, and, and I don't know what this is for, but we get down on the stage, and the whole crowd begins to chant, we love you. We love you. And at first I'm thinking, gosh, this is worse than I thought. <laughs> um, and I don't know, but the sheer deafening roar of the crowd broke through this um, whatever in me. This emotional retardation. And I began to shudder and I began to bawl. And you know, in some strange way, I still don't understand what happened that day. But in some strange way, it was the, sh the, the sheer intensity of the crowd and their affirmation that I heard the voice of God. And I believed it, that I was the beloved. Friends, you are the beloved. You are the beloved. Um, I hope you believe that. It changed me. I hope it could change you. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Amen. Jesus, you've been merciful to me. As a pastor, I damaged people. Damaged my family. I damaged um, uh, staff members. I was blind, but you are so kind, so patient, 
and I can't believe that I'm, I'm the object of your affection. And whatever delight I feel over my little grandchildren, um, you have that delight over me times a hundred. And when I remember that, my soul is satisfied. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for these friends. Lord, may they have saddest souls that are full. May they hear you say, I love you. You are my beloved. You are mine. And I'm I love watching you do life. I'm crazy about you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're going to do something uh, a little bit different. Uh, no questions. I, I, don't, I feel like it would be trite to do questions right now. Came home from Sunday night, and um, Daniel said to me, he was up in the playroom watching the ravens Bengals game and doing his homework at the same time. And I said, why don't you come down and at least, if that's what we're doing, at least do it down here with us, not up in the playroom. And uh, after a few minutes, he said, Dad, 